0: at our own risk <laughs> ready ready for the dark tales when we dare not close our eyes
1: brace yourself for the no sleep podcast <laughs> Sleep Podcast Video Store. I'm David Cummings. Our VCR is ready to play stories about the horrors found in the out of doors. It's our pleasure to welcome a new illustrator to our team this week. Thea Arnman is an enthusiast of the Macabre and Weird from Sweden. She creates illustrations as well as animations, often time-consuming projects with intricate details. She recently graduated in Aesthetics and Media and will continue her studies while expanding her portfolio. Check the show notes for a link to where you can find more of her stunning art. Valcomenthea, Thanks for sharing your talent with us. Now, with all the outdoor stories this week, let's huddle inside and start the show. So turn down the lights and grab the remote, because it's time for our feature presentation. In our first tale, we're introduced to the kind of childhood legend that could only be made up in the mind of a kid. However, as shared with us by author Rachel Bowman, we discover what might seem like a preteen's fever dream is soon revealed to be terrifyingly real. Performing this tale are Jessica McAvoy, Mick Wingert, Mike Delgadio, and Nicole Doolin. So forget Big Bird, forget the Cookie Monster. What you really need to be worried about is the Puppet in the Tree.
2: Every elementary school has a ridiculous urban legend. My school had Muppet Man, and I hated him. Muppet Man was deformed. Ill-fated plastic surgery left him with the ghastly proportions of a marionette puppet, so he wore a fluffy animal costume he'd stolen from the school theater. He lived in an ancient oak tree in the recess yard. Some kids claimed he lived in the branches, watching us play from camouflaged hideouts of leaves and twigs. The morbid kids said he lived in the trunk, eating caterpillar larvae and torturing the ghost of Jason Hughes. Jason Hughes wasn't an urban legend, unfortunately. He was just a tragedy, a doomed, anxious wreck cursed with ridiculously outsized glasses and an obsession with drawing. I remember feeling angry one rainy afternoon because I wanted to color with the teacher's new markers but Jason had already used all the paper in the classroom. Nobody liked him much, including me. But I don't know why. He was a sweet kid. Fretful, anxious, and too smart for his own good, but sweet. Jason disappeared on a November evening in second grade. A few days later, a teacher found his clothes piled at the base of the schoolyard oak tree. The principal called a school assembly to make the announcement. He made it sound like the clothes had been laundered and neatly folded. But my dad, a cop at the time, a cop with the bad habit of telling his kids things nobody should have to know, told me Jason's clothes were filthy. Worse than filthy, in fact, matted with urine, feces, and blood. He told me I couldn't repeat it to anybody. I never did. It was too horrifying to even think about, let alone share. That's why I hated Muppet Man. Nobody could say his name without some snot-nosed little shit from behind the tracks saying Jason's. A horrifying schoolyard litany. That was another problem. The kids at school knew Jason was my neighbor, and they knew my dad was a cop. After weeks of hysterical interest... I was abruptly ostracized. It suited me fine. Over the past couple years, my dad had arrested the parents of at least two kids in my class, and they gave me hell for it. It was alright. I preferred books to people anyway, and spent every recess reading under the oak tree. Sometimes I pretended to read to Jason's ghost. Penance, I guess, for treating him so poorly. One day in February, I got to school two or three hours late. I don't remember why. I only remember getting to school and plodding across the empty recess yard. That time of year, my little corner of the world is hard to live in. The sky goes from polished steel in the morning to icy steel in the evening, and at night dims to a flat, watery darkness that makes my heart ache. The plants are all dead the tree's skeletal except for flourishing colonies of mistletoe. It looks like despair. The empty recess yard was no exception. Everything was gray and pale and somehow brittle, like it would crack and shatter if you touched it. An almost preternatural stillness turned that pale winter fragility into something sinister. Paranoia swirled through me suddenly. What if, just what if, It was true. What if the universe was broken? What if the scene before me was a fragile husk, just waiting for a misplaced step to break it into pieces? I swallowed a surge of panic and took extra care with each step, setting my foot down with excruciating gentleness. Sand crunched under my soles. Everything felt solid, but the sense of glassy fragility persisted. I fought the urge to close my eyes and walked as quickly as I dared. My path took me right past the oak tree. Black, brown glass bark glimmered faintly. Branches threw spiderweb patterns against the grim sky. They were bare except for nests of mistletoe. The tree was infested with it. Suddenly, with a disconcerting, painfully adult burst of clarity, it occurred to me. The tree was dying. I slowed to a halt, staring at it with the kind of hushed reverence you're supposed to feel in church. The tree was scary but beautiful at the same time. More than that, it was a pillar of my memory. It was visible from my backyard, towering over the school and my childhood like a reassuring and eternal sentry. Except it wasn't eternal. It would be gone someday, maybe before I left grade school, maybe sooner. My throat felt hot and tight. I took in the side of the bare branches and tried to mentally edit out the mistletoe clusters. It was difficult. They burst from the tree thicker than summertime leaves, and they kept moving, jostled, no doubt, by the cold winter wind. Except another brutal bleak epiphany. There was no wind. The dark mistletoe rustled and writhed like a trapped serpent. Cold air stung my eyes as they widened. Bright bursts of color flickered inexplicably among the branches, slithering through the mistletoe like a multicolored feather boa, and glittering in that sinuous rope of color. Eyes glassy, round eyes, the color of limes. The rope of color broke into tendrils and grew, not unlike the fungus in which it nested, overtaking the darkness with eye-wateringly vibrant neon hues. Then they twined back together, worming behind branches and mistletoe before resolving into a fluffy, ridiculously proportioned caricature of an animal, a cartoon incarnate. A Muppet. Hello. Its voice made me jump. Full and hearty and unpleasantly friendly. A cartoon voice. My lip trembled. Tears pricked my eyes, scorching and frigid at once. You're not real.
0: Yes, I am. I might even be realer than you.
2: It fixed me with a sharp, reptilian stare that made me want to scream. The world looked glassier than ever, faded and brittle except for the obscenely bright monstrosity above me. I stamped my foot and held my breath, praying that the world would shatter, taking the technicolor monster with it. If I broke a broken world, would I break anything at all? But the pavement remained solid. The frozen chill bypassed the soles of my shoes and bleached into my feet. The creature stretched, and stretched, and stretched, slowly snaking its way down the trunk of the tree, simultaneously sloth-like and reptilian, bursting with that ridiculous Crayola fur. It should have been funny. Why wasn't it funny? Why was I scared? Why wasn't I running away? It slid down the bark until its eyes were level with my own.
0: Only really real things can hide themselves in plain sight. Real things like me and Jason Hughes. Your friends call me Muppet Man. You can too.
2: It stretched out a hand, long and absurdly thin, almost like distorted frog feet except for the rainbow fur. I turned and ran into the school, screaming all the way. The poor nurse tried to extract the story from me. I don't even remember what I said. I just remember hiding under her desk and sobbing. When I finally blubbered the words Muppet Man and Jason, the school went on lockdown. The cops came. My father wasn't with them. I watched through the window, gagging and crying and trying to forget Muppet Man's bright green eyes. But how could I, when everything else The oak tree and the police, the nurse and the sky and my own shaking hands looked so brittle and faded. Muppet Man was the only vibrant thing, the only bright thing, the only whole thing, the only real thing. Sometime later, maybe a minute, maybe ten hours for all I knew, a cop came into the nurse's office. He grabbed my elbow over the protestations of the nurse. ...and marched me outside. The world rushed past me in a grey, dead, glittering blur. The tree loomed ahead, dark and blank and terribly close. I flailed, but he dragged me to the oak tree and shoved me forward. I stopped inches from the bark, dark and dead and cracked... ...except for absurd tufts of technicolor fur.
1: Did you do that?
2: Do what? (laughs) Do what? He pointed to a particularly obscene knot of neon pink fur.
1: Did you put that on this tree?
2: I told him no. I told him it was Muppet Man. That I'd seen Muppet Man. That Muppet Man knew Jason, and now he knew me. The nurse sent me home shortly thereafter, and my parents pulled me out of school and packed me off to my grandparents' house in San Diego that very night. I stayed for three weeks. Stayed until I stopped having nightmares of Muppet Man eating Jason's bloody, shit-stained clothes while I watched, trapped by his bright eyes like a deer in headlights. I got home on a Wednesday evening. I know it was Wednesday because I remember looking at my mom's calendar— big and glossy and full of beagle puppies. It always made me smile. My parents fed me Burger King and ice cream cake, then sent me to bed. When I pulled my covers back, I froze. Everything around me blanched, turning pale and glassy. Everything except the dirty tufts of neon bright fur on my pillow." My parents assumed I did it, and yelled at me for almost an hour, but they let me sleep in their bed anyway. School was a nightmare. I spent the entire morning dreading recess. When the bell rang, I thought about throwing a tantrum just to stay in the classroom. But I'd get in trouble. My parents would be angry. I'd go to the principal's office. Besides, there'd be other kids on the playground. Vibrant, living, colorful, noisy kids. All that noise and brightness might be too much for Muppet Man. I told myself these things, but still ran to the bathroom when the bell rang. I threw up, then sat in the stall until a teacher, summoned no doubt by a tattletale, came and told me I had to go outside. I dithered in the corner by the tetherball court, as far from the oak tree as I could get. Even from a distance, I thought I caught glimpses of bright fur slithering through the branches. I told myself I was seeing things. When the days finally got warmer, steel skies softening to rich blue in the daytime, and Easter egg colors at night, bare branches sprouting buds, flowers growing in the planter boxes all around the school, I resumed my recess ritual of reading under the tree. I was cautious at first, but determined. Every adult in my life had convinced me that I was hallucinating. Every kid in school knew I'd had a breakdown about Muppet Man. The taunts alone were enough to steal my resolve. Before I knew it, I was reading under the tree like always. The glassy winter horror barely more than memory. One afternoon in April, something pulled me out of my book. I didn't know what it was at first. Maybe the kids screaming on the jungle gym. Maybe the fifth grade girls gossiping a few yards away. Maybe the warm breeze rustling the leaves. I looked down and gasped. Larvae crawled along my arms. The yellow-white caterpillar worms that lived in the bark. The kind all the kids said, Muppet Man, loved to eat. I ran to the tetherball court and lingered until the bell rang. When I got home that afternoon, I found clusters of neon fur all over my bedroom. I ran to my mother. She lost her temper, marched me into the backyard, and told me to stay until she was done cleaning up after me. When I finished crying... I settled myself under the apricot tree and got lost in my book. As the afternoon light deepened, rich daylight giving way to copper, something snapped me out of my reverie. I looked down and saw white worms, soft and tiny and somehow wet, inching over my arms.
0: Hello. Sorry it's been so long. I guess I've been a
2: bad friend. I'm crazy. Crazy, crazy, crazy. I snapped my book shut and closed my eyes. Scratchy, polyester fur crumpled against my skin.
0: Not crazy. Just really real. Like me. And Jason Hughes. What are you reading?
2: He reached out blinding, multicolor fur blazing in the dappled sunlight, and flipped the book over.
1: Black beauty.
2: Is it good? It's great. <laughs> I wanted to leap to my feet, wanted to run screaming into the house, but my bones felt watery and frozen at once. I wouldn't be able to stand up, let alone run. Muppet Man brushed the worms off my arm and settled down beside me. His fur made me feel itchy. I didn't look up. I already knew what I would see. That slothy dinosaur face dominated by glassy eyes that would blaze in the dying sun. I didn't want to see it. I was afraid of what would happen if I did. My mom will see you. He patted my arm. Fur crunching again. Tears flooded my eyes.
0: You should read to me.
2: No. Strong, fuzzy fingers wrapped my wrist.
3: I want you to read to me. No. If you read to me, I'll take you to see Jason
2: Hughes. I almost scoffed. Jason Hughes, with the giant glasses and the keening voice... Anxious Jason Hughes, who stole all the art paper in the classroom just to draw his stupid fish and stupid beetles. Jason Hughes, who'd been reduced to bloody, shit-stained clothes at the base of the schoolyard tree. Why?
1: Because we're lonely.
2: If he's lonely, he should go home.
0: He can. His mommy doesn't like him.
2: I pondered this briefly. I thought of my dad. My poor dad who worked himself to death with overtime. My poor dad who couldn't catch a break at work. But what if I could help him? What if I could find Jason Hughes and give my dad all the credit? When would I see Jason?
3: It depends on how well you
2: read. I opened my book to the very first page and began to read aloud. The scrape of the sliding glass door broke my concentration shortly after. I looked up and saw my mom. My heart leapt to my throat. I spun around hopefully, but Muppet Man was gone. The next morning, I found clumps of neon fur in my dresser drawers. It clung to my pants and shirts like lint. As spring bled into summer, and summer ceded to yet another school year, I fell into an uneasy routine with Muppet Man. Every day, just before sunset, I took my book out to the apricot tree. Usually, he wasn't there. But sometimes, when one parent was gone and the other busy, or when they'd left the house together for a couple's walk, Muppet Man would appear, and I would read to him. I didn't see him after August. Despite my illusions of boosting my father's career, I was relieved. Maybe Muppet Man was realer than real. But if that was true, then real was wrong. I'd almost convinced myself it was all a peculiar nightmare, even a hallucination. But then, on Halloween morning, I found a note on my windowsill. Neatly folded construction paper, printed with a brightly colored marker.
0: Come to the school tree tonight at 11.
2: M.M. Coarse strands of yellow, pink, and blue hair sprinkled the note. I brushed them off and tucked the paper in my pocket. I wasn't stupid. I knew I couldn't go alone. I was terrified of Muppet Man and almost as terrified of what my parents would do to me if they caught me sneaking out. So I went to my father. I showed him the note and begged until I wept. After trick-or-treating, instead of trick-or-treating. My dad accused me of making it all up for a while, but in the end he agreed to take me to the school at the appointed time, after a healthy round of trick-or-treating.
0: And then straight back
1: home and I don't wanna hear any more about this Muppet Man nonsense after tonight. Do you hear me?
2: I think he hoped I'd forget all about it, but there was no chance of that. We lived only a few blocks away from the school, so we walked there. The evening was unseasonably cold, almost as cold as the day I first met Muppet Man. I fought back tears the entire way, clutching my father's hand with both of my own. My trick-or-treat basket swung between us, hitting my thigh with a whispery thump. The school gates were locked, of course, but there was a small gate hidden in a passage behind the cafeteria. It had nothing but a simple latch. The kids all knew about it, but the adults never did anything. I led my father around the perimeter of the playground, keeping close to the buildings in order to hide in the shadows. Wait here. He obliged, looking tired even in the darkness. I looked at the tree. It didn't look sick anymore. Leaves hid the mistletoe infestation. It looked full and healthy. The eternal sentry once more. I stood by the trunk and whispered. Hello? Hello. Where's Jason? The branches rattled, and a dark, furry shape slithered down the tree. Glassy eyes caught the light of the moon and blazed. He's inside me. Muppet Man twisted and stretched down the tree until his eyes were level with mine. No longer was he vibrant or bright. His fur was filthy, caked with mud and sand, and bare, dirty canvas replaced large swaths of the once-lush neon coat course he was missing fur. He'd been leaving clumps of it all over my room for months. It was a wonder he had any hair left. What do you mean? Muppet Man crept closer, holding me captive with his glass eyes. His long, thin fingers touched his chin and pushed, sliding into his face and pulling it up like a child removing a Halloween mask. My heart thudded, Heavy and horrid as a war drum. Enormous glasses glinted in the moonlight, tragically outsized for the decayed little face underneath. Jason Hughes's rotted head was gray and so very fragile, gleaming like clouded glass under the moon. If I touched him, he would shatter. The absurd costume fell to the ground with a whisper. Dull, and faded. Even the eyes were dead now. The costume was dead. It had never been alive. Jason's empty sockets bulged, then broke and split apart with a series of soft, papery pops. Something roiled inside, thick and dark and gleaming, with a thousand dim lights and colors I couldn't name. The world flipped and cold playground sands dug into my face. Foil-wrapped candy spilled across the ground, glinting like stars as my dad's scream shattered the glassy silence. Perhaps it shattered Jason's poor, dead face, too. I curled up and lay still as my dad screamed, and sirens wailed in the distance. The ruined costume went into an evidence locker. Jason himself was laid to rest several weeks later. They held onto the body as long as they did in order to find out what happened to him. I asked my father about it, but he refused to tell me. I was disappointed yet relieved, and I never tried to find out on my own. I did my best to forget everything, and actually came close. I might have managed, had my father kept his mouth shut. He has a habit of telling me things I shouldn't know. Things nobody should know. I guess it's a personal exorcism, freeing demons that haunt you. It's just that the problem with freeing demons is that demons usually go on to haunt someone else. My dad retired a few years ago, but he still has friends on the force. They get together and talk every once in a while. They had one of their visits last night, and one of his friends brought up Jason Hughes.
0: Did they find the guy who did it?
2: No,
4: but the costume. That weird puppet costume? It's not in evidence anymore. It's gone. What, did
0: somebody take it? Did they accidentally toss it?
2: We don't know. That alone was enough to haunt me forever. But it didn't stop at enough. Demons never stop at enough, if they ever stop at all. I know this because when I got up this morning, I found dirty tufts of neon fur scattered all across my bedroom floor.
1: Plenty of towns have that one eerie spot around which a bunch of urban legends centre. When that spot happens to be a mysterious island in the middle of a lake, then chances are there are numerous tales to be told about it. One such tale is shared with us by author Anderson West, who introduces us to a group of teens who spend their evenings on the lake shore. Performing this tale are Jeff Clement, Atticus Jackson, and Kyle Akers. So listen to what you're told and pay attention to the details. Otherwise, you might find yourself having to offer gifts to Avalon.
4: People had always told me stories about the cannibal family that lived on the island in the lake near my hometown. Most of the stories happened between the early 1800s and the 1950s. The Mornies is what they called them. This wasn't a proper surname. It was just what the fishermen of the lake nicknamed them because it was the only time anyone ever caught a glimpse of them. In the early morning, when darkness still stained a person's vision... The Morneys lived in a secluded nook on the island that was basically an enormous rock poking out of the water. Many people in town refer to it as Avalon, after some kind of King Arthur mythology. During the spring and summer, the nook was a lush green sprout and an otherwise uninhabitable stone. During the fall and winter, a person still couldn't make out a thing that went on in that area because the tightly knit trees and dead vegetation concealed all its secrets like a sturdy house built from bones. The only way to get to this nook was to either rappel down the cliff from the top of Avalon or to take a boat and climb the slimy and steep embankment. It was easy to assume that these tales were concocted by parents that didn't want their kids wandering around the lake at night so the boogeymen couldn't gobble them up. And of course, the boogeymen happened to live in a place that was nearly impossible to check out. Yes, I've heard tales about the Mornings all my life. But the idea of them don't have as much bite today as I'm sure they did before the invention of the internet. So a few nights ago, it still didn't have the same bite, when our friend Connor decided to regale us with more of these tales.
5: There it is again.
4: Still no idea what animal that is? Nope,
5: none. Connor, you got any theories? You usually got a story or two to explain everything away.
4: Much like the smell, or the lapping of water... The screeching was a constant familiarity whenever we came here. We were hanging out next to the lake, as we had for the last year or so. It had become sort of our nightly thing. Instead of socializing and trying to get with girls, like most of our fellow male counterparts did, we just sat under this picnic shelter next to the lake and talked about whatever. Ironically, a lot of it revolved around the idea of socializing more and wishing we could find girls interested in us. That is, when Connor wasn't trying to tell us some kind of crazy story. My friend Caden and I befriended Connor about a year ago, and it was Connor who had the bright idea of going out there in the first place. We fell in love with the seclusion it offered. Hardly anyone ever came down there except maybe the occasional person hankering to catch a catfish, and even that was rare on this side of the lake.
6: Did I ever tell you boys about the time they found Pete Fleming's head floating around in this here lake?
4: I shook my head. Caden blew a burst of smoke that danced around his face.
6: Who the fuck is Pete Fleming? He was a kid that went missing in the 90s. I don't know him either, but... My daddy says he should always honor the dead by saying their full name.
5: Well, I guess they found part of them. Let me guess, you're going to tell us something about the mornings again.
4: He pointed to the dark outline of Avalon. That night we could easily see it due to what was left of the hunter's moon the night prior. Connor looked like he'd been caught stealing for a second, but recovered his composure with a grin.
6: Am I turning out to be that
4: predictable? Yeah, you kind of are. But it's okay. What about
6: this Pete Fleming? Data says Pete was often seen playing out here late at night.
4: Connor pointed to the basketball goal with a ratty net dangling beneath, about a hundred yards away from the shed.
6: He loved basketball and desperately wanted to play varsity. Problem was, he just wasn't that good. But he sure as hell practiced that goal a lot. So the morning slipped down here one night and grabbed him?
4: Connor gave Caden the same grin as before, like it was a default grin set for cynics.
6: You're getting the hang of these stories, Kay. Maybe your daddy, the garbage man, could tell you some whopper tales, and I'll stand here and cut open those stories like a fell deer, just like you do with mine.
4: Caden was taken back for a split moment. He brought his head down a little.
5: Sorry, Connor. I won't interrupt
6: anymore. It's all right. Now, as you all know... My dad is a deputy for the county, and was then, too. He said Pete Fleming must have been down here just about every week now. See, his daddy didn't care what the hell his son did, and he certainly didn't care enough about his son's dreams to get him a damn basketball goal that would set him back less than 50 bucks. Wait,
4: Connor. I'm not saying anything bad about these stories, but I am picking up on a theme.
6: What's that, Marshall?
4: You've told us about a homeless man the town's only prostitute, a couple of drug addicts, and now an unloved kid, these are all people that people normally wouldn't miss,
6: and they all hung around the lake. Well, people may miss the prostitute. Please, remember to use the names of the dead. Paul Jones, Clara Bennington, Tim Dales, Sue Gregory, and Pete Fleming.
4: Connor recited like he was delivering Hail Marys.
6: Sorry, I just forgot.
4: Connor raised his hand up to me.
6: It's all right, but you're right. The mornings ain't fools. They've almost got too careless in the fifties, and since then they wisened up. Poor old Pete's dreams were never realized, but because of where he decided to hang out and his home life circumstances, he was picked off. They never found the rest of him. He was the last bit of human remains they ever found in this lake.
4: I looked at Caden. I figured we were thinking the same thing. So that was what? Over 20 years ago? Are the Mornies not killing anymore?
6: I wouldn't say that. Listen, fellas. I want to be honest with you. I was the one that started bringing you out to this lake, but I've been telling you these stories for an entirely different reason. What's that?
4: But before Connor could answer, we were cut short by some rectangular headlights glaring from a vehicle I could hardly make out. The vehicle veered to the right of us, and on down to the other picnic shelter. I couldn't see them anymore, since a large rock obstructed the view. I didn't care. I was just glad they turned off that vehicle.
5: We've met our cat fisherman quota this month.
4: Yeah, he really needs to get that belt changed. Or go ahead and push that car and the like. (laughs) (laughs) We both laughed, but Connor remained grave.
6: Say, you fellas want to see what's going on in town?
4: I don't know what changed Connor's demeanor, and he certainly never suggested going into town to hang out with the ingenuines, as he called them. Caden dropped his bottle of Orange Crush in the trash can.
5: I could use a bite to eat. But first, let me take a piss. Hurry up, then.
4: In the moment of awkward silence, I cocked my head to listen to the other sound over Caden's pissing. It sounded like something splashing in the lake. Every now and then, fish would splash to the surface to snag an insect, but this was a repeated sound. Whatever it was, it sounded heavier than a fish barely tapping the surface. I didn't think anything of it at the time, but after that night, I thought about it a lot. Connor was looking dreamily at the basketball goal. <laughs> Something on your mind? Connor jumped at my question.
6: Nah, I'm sorry. I just kind of getting tired of this place.
4: I nodded, not knowing what else to say. We saw Caden running back toward us, but it was strange. He was silent as he sprinted our way, but with that look on his face, it seemed like it should have been coupled with screaming. I grabbed the keys in my pocket out of instinct, ready to get in my truck and take off if I had to. Caden stopped in front of us.
5: We need to get out of here. What? That guy that drove by us. He's throwing something in the lake I heard splashing sounds as I was pissing So I, I peered behind the rock I don't know what it was it-, it looked like jars A lot of fucking jars That is pretty weird But No, God damn it, I want to get out of here He saw me looking at him He looked He saw you? Yeah,
4: okay, Kate We'll get out of here I walked toward my truck in a hurry, but Caden, who rode with me, was already at the passenger side door jiggling the handle.
5: Hurry the fuck up, Marshal!
4: Connor had driven separately. I looked at him in case he wanted to ditch his car and ride with us.
6: I'm right behind you guys. Just head on home. I'll see y'all at school tomorrow.
4: I nodded at him, and we were out of there. The next day at school, I felt a little unnerved. It seemed silly to be worried about a strange occurrence that happened at the lake. I mean, chances were pretty good to have at least a few weird moments in any particular spot if you're there enough. But knowing some oddball stranger was tossing jars in the lake was creepy. And Caden's extreme reaction was unsettling. Caden hardly reacted to anything and I wondered if there was something else he wasn't telling us. It wasn't until after school that I saw Connor standing outside next to the soda machines.
6: Have you seen Caden today?
4: I didn't have any classes with either of them this semester, but I knew Caden had government with Connor. No? Was he not in class with you? Connor shook his head.
5: Which one of you butt monkeys put this on the hood of my car this morning?
4: When we turned around, we saw him standing there, looking as livid as a cat poked one too many times, and holding an empty mason jar that had something taped on its side. I looked at Connor, who returned my gaze, and we both looked back at Caden like animals caught in the deathlights of the open road.
5: I'm guessing Connor, but you can be pretty
6: sly sometimes too, Marshal. <laughs> I didn't do it, man. I was actually a little worried about you, believe it or not. You didn't show up at government class after what happened last night, and now... And now what? Now I'm even more worried.
4: I stared at Connor, bug-eyed. I didn't do it either.
6: Well,
5: one of you had to do it. It's not a joke anyone except you all would get. It even has my name written on tape right here. When I first saw this, it scared the shit out of me. I didn't want to leave the house. Guess I'll just have to get both of you back if no one wants to fess up.
4: Caden cradled the jar under his arm and walked away. I figured Connor was obviously the one that did it, but was really committed to the joke. He even played the concerned friend part very well as he ran after Caden. I stood and watched them go, shaking my head. Connor must have done it. But my sense of unease lingered. That evening, Connor and I decided to play video games at my house. I called Caden up to see if he wanted to hang out at my place instead of going to the lake. There was no fucking way we were going back there. I could tell Caden was still a little pissed about the jar, but he agreed to come out a bit later. We were playing some Sonic the Hedgehog 2 when I looked at my watch and realized it was getting late. Caden still hadn't shown up. I suggested we get some fresh air, and Connor followed me outside. I wonder what has taken him so long. Think this is his way of getting back at us? Either through passive aggressively flaking out on us, or, I don't know, hiding in the bushes somewhere. You did it, right? What? The jar? It was you. It had to be. Connor. Solemnly shook his head. He looked like he was going to be sick. <sighs> Jeez, you don't have to lie about the whole thing to me, Connor.
6: Kay's not here. It <laughs> wasn't me, man. Kay must have gotten looked at real good by the ferryman.
4: My heart dropped when he said this. Did he just give the guy throwing the jars in the lake a name? The ferryman? Before I could get more information out of Connor, we heard something moving in the surrounding woods above my house. Deer run around here all the time, but it didn't sound like the frolicking cadence of a deer. I bet that's that son of a bitch trying to scare us. Connor placed a hand on my shoulder. No, I'm fed up with this shit. It's probably the both of you trying to scare me. I saw you go after Caden earlier. That ain't what that was about. The caller ID read Caden's name and number. I answered it immediately with relief. Please tell me that's you in the woods, Caden. Heavy breathing caused vibration from the phone speaker to tickle my inner ear in a sickening way. I held tightly to that phone, waiting to hear gotcha. Instead the breathing manifested into a voice too deep and gargled to be cadence. It's in the I instantly ended the call.
6: Get inside, Connor. I'm sorry about all this, Marshal. I'm sorry I ever took you all to the lake at night. Those stories, they were real. I told them so y'all wouldn't want to go back.
4: You're not saying this has
6: something to do with the Mornies. It's too late. Go inside. Lock your doors and pray he didn't see your face or learn your full name. Connor
4: ran to his parked car across the street and didn't even so much as turn and look back, no matter how much I called for him. My thoughts ran wild all night as I lay in bed. The man with jars. Caden receiving a jar. The clinking sound from the woods. Connor's behavior. But what resonated the most was the call from Caden's phone. Maybe it could still be a prank with a voice changer, but I couldn't get it out of my head. All these thoughts circulated throughout the night. I stared at the ceiling, eyes wide open, until the morning dawn broke. I could hear Mom talking to someone downstairs, but I remained in bed until she called for me to come down. When I saw who was at the door, I was more than a little alarmed. A large, disheveled cop stood in the doorway. His hair sprung out from his hat like thirsty bushes. He had dark circles around his eyes, and he greeted me with a smile that looked like he brushed his teeth with a fucking candy bar. The cop looked me over for an awkward moment and finally spoke.
1: "'Hey, Marshall, is it?' "'I'm Deputy Reynolds. I think you know my boy, Connor.'
4: "'Is he okay?'
1: Connor's fine. Grounded, but fine.
4: Deputy Reynolds looked at my mom.
1: Ma'am, you mind terribly if I talk to your boy out here on the porch in private?
4: My mom excused herself, but not before letting me know she'd be in the kitchen if I needed her. I anxiously followed the brood of a man outside. I'd never seen Connor's dad. Come to think of it, I'd didn't even know where Connor lived in our town. We sat outside on the porch as Reynolds brought out a notepad and pen from his pocket.
1: Is it just you and your mama here? I nodded. How's school? I guess it's fine. Connor says you keep a low profile and your nose clean. Hmm, I like that.
4: I was feeling a little irritated at this point. Maybe it was due to my lack of sleep, mixed with a fucked-up situation. But I really couldn't handle small talk. Connor's dad or not. Can you tell
1: me what all this is about, officer? I'm gonna make this quick and painless.
4: I always do. When's the last time you've seen Caden Fields? I saw him yesterday, just as school let out. And I talked to him on the phone yesterday evening, asking him to come over. The deputy wrote something down on his notepad which caused me to notice his long, dirty fingernails. I wondered how the hell this cop got away with looking so unkempt. The deputy caught me looking and gave me an inappropriately leery smile.
1: I don't suppose he showed up though, did he? No, sir. Marshal, I don't want to scare you, but we found Caden's car just about half a mile down the road. It was in a ditch. (laughs) We've got officers investigating it right now, so I can't say much more about it. His parents called and said he was supposed to come to your house, but never came back home last night. Do you know anything else about what could have happened or where he could be?
4: The filthy police officer's droopy eyes were fixated on my own, which must have looked tired and bloodshot. That voice over the phone last night kept playing through my head. I decided to tell him just about everything I knew. The man throwing jars in the lake, the jar on the hood of Caden's car, and the weird phone call from Caden's phone. After hearing this, Reynolds seemed lost in thought. That's damn strange. Isn't there anything you can do about it? "'Can you take my phone and find out where Kay's phone is?' "'The oddly unsympathetic Deputy Reynolds just smiled that hideous smile "'and stood up, towering over me. "'A sweaty scent that put me in mind of onions "'wafted its way up my nose.
1: "'I don't reckon we've reached that kind of technological advancing yet. "'What did you say your last name was again?
4: "'I need it for the record.' "'Deal.' Marshall deal. Look, don't I need to make a formal statement or something? The large man wrote one last thing down then stuffed the notepad in his pocket.
1: Nah, I've got what I need for now.
4: I wanted to ask Reynolds more questions regarding Caden's disappearance, but I figured he'd brush them off. And to be honest, I wanted him to leave even more. He didn't seem right.
1: I'll be in touch, Marshall. Thanks for telling me everything you know. I'll tell Connor you said hello.
4: The rest of the day and night, I never heard back from Caden or Connor. I was worried about Caden, but I honestly didn't like thinking about the situation as if it were dire. I kept thinking, or at least fooled myself into thinking. It was a very elaborate prank, a prank that involved Connor and some homeless guy that got to pose as a police officer. Honestly, how could that slob have been a cop? The only thing he did was tell me Caden was missing and asked for my full name. My full name? Why did that sound familiar? I just wanted to sleep off the day. If Connor and Caden wanted to single me out, then so be it. I slept through most of the day and all night. The only time I woke up was when I heard a loud screeching outside. But I fell right back to sleep. This morning, I got up to go get some breakfast. Mom was sleeping off a drinking bender and didn't hear me scream like a five-year-old. Ah! On the hood of my truck was a large glass jar. I could see the label from a distance and read it as I approached. It read, Marshall Deal, on some dirty masking tape stuck to the side. I've stayed in my room all day, and I haven't been on any bit of social media fear of someone mentioning Caden being missing might take away my only sliver of protection. Denial. As the minutes of this night tick away, my denial receives another crack, ready to shatter. I've been getting calls from Caden's phone over the last hour. I refuse to answer them because I'm nearly certain I'll hear that voice again. I'm sure it was that same screeching that woke me up last night. I'm sure it's the same screeching we often heard at the lake. I'd call the police, but I'm not sure the police would be concerned. The only thing to do is sit here and wait wait for the ferryman to claim me just as I'm now certain he claimed Caden and if he did and if he's coming to claim me then that leads to the most depressing realization of all we're just a couple of boys that no one will miss please honor the dead if you ever mention what you've heard here tonight say our names, our full names. We were Caden Fields and Marshall Deal. At least maybe we can be remembered as more than just servings sent across a lake to a family that I am no longer certain doesn't exist.
1: The forest is always scary and always filled with the unknown. Even if you're the someone who makes a living showing tourists around the woods you grew up in, you can still be surprised. That's the case with a man called Jake in this tale shared with us by author John Harrison. No matter how much he might think he knows about the place he calls home, there's always something new to discover. Performing this tale are David Alt and erica sanderson so if you go down to the woods today you better go with a guide and hope that guide is competent enough to take you safely along the trail at night
7: Hilltop Pines is beautiful. I know I'm probably slightly biased, but it is. Sitting on top of a large hill, overlooking a lake and surrounded by a forest, it takes its name from the ring of pine trees in the centre of the village. Only a few of us actually live in the village. It's made up of quaint holiday cottages and picturesque guest houses servicing the hundreds of tourists that descend on us every summer. Tourism is essential for everyone in the village, and my family is no exception. For as long as I can remember, I have helped my parents run the family business. I started out in our tuck shop out on the trail. We served ice cream, drinks, and snacks to families out exploring for the day. Eventually, I followed in my father's footsteps, leading my own walking groups around the trails. I even introduced my own walk, Ghost Walk at Sunset. I would take groups out just before the sunset and guide them around the top forest trail, past the old ruins of what is believed to be the first home built up here. It's thought to predate the village by about a hundred years and is surrounded with local stories of disembodied voices, shadowy figures, and a gruesome murder. None of this is recorded anywhere and my father has always said that they're just stories made up to scare the kids away from the area. I had just finished one of my walks. The group had only been small and the walk quite uneventful. The group was middle-aged and they delighted in hearing all the urban legends and stories of years gone by. They asked all the normal questions. Had I ever seen anything? Had anybody got any pictures? Where was the best place to try and see one of the ghosts? I entertained them all, answered all their questions, and left them with a warning to stay out of the woods at night. All the trails can look the same in the dark, and it's easy to become disorientated and end up lost. This had the desired effect, and they all began to thank me for the tour and go their own ways, a look of unease painted across their faces. That was the part of the job I loved the most. The looks people left with and the smiles on their faces were a good indicator of how well the walk had gone tiredness seemed to fill up my body in an instant it had been a long day and i was looking forward to my bed i waved the last of the guests off and let my mind wander to the beers waiting in the fridge back at home as i started to wander into the village square
2: jake jake
7: i knew it was my mother before i even turned around i turned on my heel and jogged towards the opposite end of the square hey mum, what's the matter
2: Oh, nothing. I've just been stupid and left the cash tin in the shack. You couldn't run and grab it for me, could you?"
7: She seemed embarrassed at making such a rookie mistake. The shack was way back on the trail and the light was beginning to fade. Yeah, no problem. Chuck me the key. I didn't really want to go back out there, but I didn't want my mum going out there even more. She looked exhausted. This season had been much busier than normal and I could hear all the voices from the pub drifting across the square reminding us so.
1: Thank you, darling. Don't be long, dinner's in the oven.
7: She turned away and headed back towards home. I made my way back across the square towards the trail. Long shadows creaked across the ground, throwing random shapes of darkness everywhere. I knew my way around the trails like the back of my hand. But as a rule, I always tried to avoid the forest after sunset. Something about it didn't feel right, didn't feel natural. As I reached the tree line, the sunlight was fading fast and the forest was already dark. The familiar daytime noises had been replaced by unsettling sounds and the inviting trail during daylight hours now seemed to sit there menacingly, daring people to enter. I shuddered as I looked down the trail. Then I told myself how stupid I was being. I knew these trails. I had walked them hundreds, if not thousands, of times. You're being a child. You're starting to believe all the stories you tell everyone. There's nothing out there. I set off, still not quite convinced. Although the walk proceeded like it always did, something felt off. I kept turning every few steps, looking deep into the trees or glancing over my shoulder. The feeling of being watched was heavy, almost like the energy was being drained out of me. I put it down to nerves. I'd got myself all worked up about coming in here and now my adrenaline was dumping and it had been a long day. I gave my head a shake and carried on to the shack. Once I got there and unlocked the heavy wooden door, I saw the cash tin was sat on the counter right where my mother had said she had left it. I moved to pick it up. Footsteps. They were only very light, and at first I wasn't sure if I had heard them at all, or if my tired mind was playing tricks on me. I froze and listened, trying to steady my breathing, the drumming beat of my heart thumping in my ears. Seconds passed, stretching into minutes, but nothing else happened. In fact, there was no noise at all, no branches rustling, no animals, nothing. I picked up the cash tin and shook my head. I nearly dropped the cash tin. The footsteps seemed to be leading away from the cabin. I wondered if whoever was out there had heard me just like I had heard them, and they too had frozen outside, listening to see if they had really heard something. I knew I couldn't stay there, it was getting darker and darker with every passing minute. The footsteps had been very light, it could have been an animal, it could have been anything. I pushed open the door and glanced around. Nothing. I relaxed a bit. I had scared myself. My brain had heard something completely innocent, but turned it into something more sinister. I turned to lock the shack back up.
2: Help me, please.
7: I spun around and there she stood on the trail. A young girl, maybe six or seven. Her clothes struck me as odd. It was like she was in costume. She had an old-fashioned but really beautiful white dress on. It had mud smeared in places and tears ran down her cheeks. Holy shit, you made me jump. Oh. Hey, uh, Are you okay? What are you doing out here? My heart felt it was about to burst out of my chest and I tried to calm my breathing. It was just a little girl and she clearly needed some help.
2: Please help. It's my mother. She's
7: hurt. This happened a few times every summer. People get too confident and decide to wander onto the trails at night, get lost and end up hurting themselves. Okay, show me, let's go. I jogged to catch up to where she was. She didn't wait. She turned and began to run back up the trail. I was out of breath really quickly, for such a small girl she could run with surprising speed. Hey, slow down a bit! I was struggling to keep up, but she didn't slow down at all. She just turned to look at me over her shoulder and waved at me to come on. Not long after, she turned off the trail and began to run up the hill. I stopped and tried to catch my breath. (sighs) Wait! Wait, wait! Where are you going? This way. It's not
6: much further.
7: Her demeanor had changed abruptly. She didn't seem as scared or upset. Instead, she had a small smirk on her face. For a second, I hesitated. A cold shiver ran through me. This didn't feel right. My gut was telling me to run, get back to the village. This girl wasn't normal. I could always shout for help once I got back. But what if she died? What if this girl was telling the truth? What if her mother was lying somewhere injured and I ran? I couldn't take that risk. I jogged up the hill after her. We ran and ran. My lungs burned in protest and my legs began to weaken, yet I never gained any ground on her. I stumbled over a protruding root and my face smashed into the dirt. I lay there for a few seconds, filling my lungs with air and spitting the mixture of blood and dirt out of my mouth. I pulled myself to my feet and looked towards where the girl had been running. There stood a small wooden cabin, and in the doorway, a little girl. I stopped dead in my tracks and felt my breath catch in my throat. I knew these woods like the back of my hand. This did not belong here. I'd become quite disorientated running after the girl, but if there was a cabin like this out here, I would have seen it before. It wasn't very big. From the outside, it looked like it was only a one-room hut. It had stood there for a very long time, the roof was covered in moss, and the window and door frame looked like they needed some serious TLC. A small light glowed within the cabin, making it near impossible to see the face of the girl now that she stood in the doorway. She waved at me to follow as she darted inside. I jogged up to the door and pushed it open. She wasn't there. The cabin was very basic a bed, a table, a small desk, and a chair. There was nowhere she could be hiding, yet there was no sign of her. I nearly jumped right out of my skin. I ran outside to see who it was. There was no one there. I circled the entire cabin, and no one. This time I was sure it had come from inside the cabin. I went back in, checking all over, pushing different parts of the wall, looking for a hidden compartment. It had come from the floor. A large rug lay in the center of the room, and I threw it aside, knocking the table over with it. A trapdoor. A doorway to where? The cabin seemed to lay flat on the earth. I dropped to my knees to pull the trapdoor open. I looked down and saw the little girl sitting there, her head in her hands and her knees pulled in close. Hey, are you okay? How'd you get down there? I crouched low to the trapdoor, stretching my hand out towards her. She looked up, tears rolling down her cheeks. The sadness in her eyes told me something was seriously wrong. Where's your mother? Come on, let's get you out of there. I reached down now with both arms to help her out. She looked me dead in the eye. I'm sorry. The front door crashed open with a bang. I spun around to see a man bounding towards me. He was huge and held an axe high above his head. It shined in the dim light and looked ready to crash down onto my skull. I tried to get to my feet, tried to move, somehow get past him and get out of there. I planted my foot to push off, but I missed the floor. I realized a fraction of a second too late that my foot was over the trapdoor. I fell backwards, flinging my arms out, but it was no good. They just bounced off the frame of the hole. I hit the ground and felt all the breath leave my body. My ears rang and a sharp pain stabbed in my skull. I looked up and felt sick. A blackness was closing in. The man's face was looking down at me with an almost manic grin. His mouth seemed to stretch further than I had ever seen a mouth go before. He burst out in laughter and I knew this was the end. And the world went black.
6: Jake! Jake!
7: I struggled to open my eyes. I felt groggy and my head ached horribly.
6: Jake!
7: I looked around, trying to remember where I was. The cabin, but... No, the cabin was gone. How was that possible? I wasn't even in a building at all. Instead, I was lying in a hole a few feet deep. My head felt like it was splitting in half, and I had never felt a pain before like I did in my arm right then. Jake! That sounded like my mother. I tried to sit up, my head spinning and throbbing in protest. I could see flashlights coming in my direction. I'm here! The words seemed to croak out of me more than be spoken, and I realized just how dry my throat was. I tried to wave, but it was far too dark, and the pain any movement brought made me feel like vomiting. Still, I knew I had to get to my feet. I planted my arms on the floor to help myself up. An intense pain shot through my arm, and I crumpled into a heap on the floor.
1: He's over here! Jake! Jake!
7: The pain was too much, and I could feel the world slipping away again as glimpses of flashlights shone down into the hole. I could feel the vibrations of people jumping down next to me. They tried to lift me up, and I passed out again. After a few days in the hospital, I was finally allowed home. A concussion, a broken arm, dehydration, and the early stages of hypothermia. The doctor said I had been lucky. If they had not found me when they did, things could have been a lot worse. For now, there is a lot of rest on the couch. The police want to speak to me, but Mum is doing a good job of keeping them away for now. I've only really spoken to Dad about what happened. I told him about the girl and how she ran off how I followed her into the woods to that cabin and how the man with the axe had appeared out of nowhere. He has told me bits too. He told me that the police discovered some bones in the clearing where they found me and when they started digging they found a lot more. He told me how when he had been a child there had been stories about the forest like my generation has. Only there had been one about a little girl who lived with her father in a cabin in the woods, and that he was awful. He would beat her and never let her near the village or a school. He would force her to go out to the trails and lure walkers back to their cabin where he would murder them. Some kids even went as far as saying that they would eat their victims. I asked him to stop there. Told him I didn't feel well, that I needed to rest. I know that I will have to speak to the police eventually. Know that I will have to face what has happened. But for now, I'm going to stay on this couch and try to forget. Try to ignore her. Try to not see her waving at me from the window. Begging for help.
1: It's always worrying when loved ones go missing. It's even more worrying when you track them down and discover they're holed up in a haunted house with a sinister past. In this tale, shared with us by author Kevin Folliard, we learn that a former murder hostel is the last place you'd want your loved ones hiding. Performing this tale are Graham Rowett, Mick Wingert, and Dan Zabula. So, hurry up and follow the leads, but don't stick around too long, or you might find yourself halfway to forgotten. Your brother was here, Kurt. Father
8: Jones studied Taylor's photo with a grim expression. The picture showed Taylor, 18 years old, a high school dropout, ready for army boot camp. In the short years since then, Taylor had grown haggard from drugs and drinking. But at 18, frozen in time, he was my naive little brother, grinning mischief. Ten years younger, Taylor had been the sibling I never expected. Our parents made me Taylor's godfather. How he'd looked up to me. And how I'd wandered from him. College... Marriage, a family, and my architectural career left baby brother drifting from my orbit. Taylor was lovable. Taylor was impressionable. and trouble kept finding him. My brother's social media went dark in Fall River, Massachusetts. I hit up every homeless shelter and PADS program in the county. At last, I found my lead in Father Jones's cozy but elegantly decorated office with his oak desk, library bookshelf, An antique grandfather clock. Its gilded pendulum seemed to be swinging away the seconds of Taylor's life. When did you last see him?
1: Weeks ago. I'm sorry, but we had to ban him.
8: That was Taylor. Expelled from school. Dishonorably discharged. Fired from every job. And then, in my own weakest moment, evicted from his big brother's home. In the months since my brother left, I was haunted by nightmares of him lost and slowly expiring by his lonesome. I told my wife I had to do it. Taylor couldn't be around our kids, playing the cool uncle by day, fraternizing with gangbangers and dealers by night. I watched his social media like a hawk, that final heartbreaking post. My mom loved me. I guess she was the only one. Pushed me out the door. Now that note festered in the public eye, And my brother was spiraling down one of life's chasms. I had to pull him out.
1: Our shelter has a strict sobriety policy. I understand. Has anyone seen him since? Father, is my brother alive? I suspect he is, Kurt. But, well, some of our regulars heard he was holed up in Halfway House. Another shelter? It was once. Now it's abandoned. Wanderers think it's a great spot to lay low. That's partly true. Police won't bother you there. He's squatting? Cooking drugs? I'm not sure. Where is this place? Locals, especially homeless and superstitious types, never go to Halfway House. It's an old structure, late 1800s. It would be on historical tours if not for its reputation. In the 1960s, two nurses, Isabel Castle and Lorraine Wing, opened a shelter there. Wild rumors circulated about these spinsters, that they were lovers, that they accepted money in exchange for deviant bodily favors. But as is often the case under that roof, this was only half the story. Castle and Wing were disliked but tolerated in light of the fact that they kept the riffraff off the streets... Hard to complain about that, I suppose. The streets were clean, all right. Castle and Wing murdered at least 50 transients in that house, likely many more. Sweet Jesus. They were caught, I assume? Almost. One victim managed to crawl out the door in search of help. The poor man dragged the severed stumps of his legs into the street, leaving a streak of blood that pointed to the house. A patrol car happened upon the scene. Knowing they'd received the death penalty, Castle and Wing locked themselves in their bedroom and slit their wrists. They slipped away, bathed in one another's blood. And the house went empty? All this time? Oh, they tried to renovate. A businesswoman in the 1980s was marketing it as a historical murder bed and breakfast. From what I understand, the experience was too intense for the guests.
8: I don't put stock in things that go bump in the night, Father, but I would greatly appreciate the address. Certainly. Father Jones jotted directions on a pad of paper.
1: When we were kids, we used to dare each other to go in there. I understand your skepticism, but as a man of belief, I do want you to know. The priest clapped his
8: hands over mine, placing the folded directions in my palm.
1: When I was eleven years old, I met the devil in that house. I pray that your brother has not.
8: I followed Father Jones' directions across town. An orange sun sank toward abandoned warehouses. Boarded-up storefronts and overgrown lots characterized the neighborhood. Grass had burnt straw yellow in summer heat, Spiky weeds poked through cracked concrete, and rusted chain-link fences seemed to droop with the weight of their grim surroundings. At a dead end sat Halfway House, a towering two-story Greek Revival. Columns flanked the off-center entryway. A broken circular window dotted the triangle of the gabled roof. Mold-crusted shutters clung to dust-caked windows. The remains of a picket fence littered the lawn— And mucky leaves stuffed warped gutters. At the end of the driveway stood the skeletal remains of a three walled shed that looked ready for the next thunderstorm to sweep it away forever. I imagined the house had been beautiful once, painted white as Parthenon ruins. The shutters showed faded flecks of green that perhaps had been brilliant emerald. A lovely front garden likely bloomed behind the once pristine spires of that picket fence. The scene reminded me very much of Taylor, once handsome, vibrant, and full of potential. A small chrome rectangle glinted on the broken brick walkway. I reached down and flipped it over. RJM, our father's monogrammed initials. How could Taylor have so carelessly dropped this keepsake? I pocketed the lighter and approached the front steps. The door hung slightly ajar forming a slanted line of darkness behind the pocked and weather-beaten four-panel door. A gray shape swirled away behind an upstairs window. I glanced up. Taylor? It's Kurt! My voice echoed in wide-open spaces around halfway house. I studied the window. No movement. Taylor, I... My chest leapt. I shrank back from the door as more splitting echoes burst like dry fireworks... Down the driveway, the shack apparently had grown impatient for the next thunderstorm. It now lay in heaps of collapsed planks. My heart jackhammered. I headed toward the front door and prayed the house was sturdier than the shed. Right from the first step over Halfway House's threshold, dread seeped into me. It wasn't just the elderly creak of the door, the musty air, or the slanted afternoon shadows. It was a weary feeling, just around the corner from, but not quite, grief that arose from the soles of my feet and twisted into my bones. Maybe the priest's story had gotten under my skin, but more likely, it was mounting anxiety that when I found Taylor, he'd be beyond saving. What would be best, finding Taylor dead or alive and irredeemable? The off-center entrance opened to a crusty, L-shaped staircase beside a high-ceilinged parlor. Cobwebs ribboned the arched stone fireplace. Against the far wall, an antique mirror reflected little but the prism of outdoor light behind my shadow. The only remaining furniture was a grand piano, still elegantly black under sheets of dust. The wood of one piano leg was split, as if hacked by a hatchet. Taylor! Taylor! Taylor, it's Kurt! I want to talk! I wandered through the parlor into a dilapidated kitchen, which the afternoon sun had baked like a greenhouse through glazed bay windows. A yellowing 1950s icebox hugged the peeling wallpaper of one corner. Cabinet doors leaned on exhausted hinges. The stench of mouse droppings burned in the air. I wheeled around. Not a soul in the parlor. Not a speck of dust seemed disturbed on those keys. But atop the piano sat a black ball cap with an embroidered Boston Red Sox B. Taylor's hat. Gooseflesh crept from the base of my spine over my shoulders. Had I simply not noticed it? Had the hat camouflaged into its piano black perch? I picked up the cap and carefully examined the room. So far as I could tell... Only my own footprints had disturbed the blanket of dust on the distressed floorboards. I fixed Taylor's cap over my head and cautiously rounded the stairs into what seemed to be the dining room. My footfalls sent cockroaches skittering to invisible fissures in the baseboard. A chalkboard rested against one wall with a curtain of spiderwebs splayed between it and the floor. I swept the sticky film away, revealing faded but legible print. Halfway house, bed, and breakfast. Enjoy coffee, tomato soup, and boiled potatoes. The same meal that Isabella Castle and Lorraine Wing served their unsuspecting victims each night. Now the hairs really mounted on the back of my neck. Someone other than Taylor was certainly in the house with me because my brother had no such musical talent. I rushed back into the parlor. While no one stood before the piano... The music did not immediately cease upon my entering the room. Instead, it swiftly faded, as if someone were steadily dialing the volume to zero on a stereo. But there were no speakers, and I knew my ears did not lie. The music had certainly come from the piano itself. Taylor! I reached out a trembling finger and tapped a dusty key. It was the kind of note you might expect from a sorely out-of-tune instrument. I felt at once that the music had come from some distant past when Isabella and Lorraine had lounged in this room and enjoyed a post-murder glass of sherry. I wished desperately that I had asked Father Jones for more information about these cultured, devious women. I steeled myself with the presumption that something dead and gone surely could not harm the living. Hoarse moans floated through the ceiling. I returned to the staircase by the front door. I didn't trust my hand to the chipped and splintered banister, but as I ascended, every stair unleashed a penetrating creak. At the top step, a ray of sun filtered through a purple stained glass window. The voice sounded very old. He pleaded from the other side of the door to my right. The words repeated, formed a hypnotic rhythm. Help. I want mother. The shadow of a nesting sparrow perched behind the stained glass. The bird chirruped between the pained man's cries. My chest tightened. Icy blankness crept into my mind. My eyes fixated on the shoddy brass doorknob. The bird flitted away with a harsh shuffle of its wings. Once it departed, I noticed another sound. A steady drip drop between the old man's whimpers.
1: Ah! Oh mother!
2: Oh mother!
1: My heart
8: sank. I could no longer stand the pain in that voice. I reached for the knob. The door didn't open to the dusty, dilapidated upstairs bedroom that in reality must have been there. Instead, I saw a Persian rug and four-poster bed pushed against one end of the room. The walls were painted specter-white. On the bedspread, two beautiful, bare-breasted women entwined their arms. One was fair, with golden coils of hair spilling down a long, swan-like neck. The other had dark, Middle Eastern features and a silky swoop of ebony hair. Both women's expressions blazed with sick glee. Before them, atop a sprawling gray tarp, an old man stood naked in a washbasin. His skin hugged starved ribs. His eyes were sunken sandpits of despair, and from the elbow down, his arms had been hacked clean off. Blood dripped into the basin from poorly cauterized stumps.
6: <sighs>
8: I want my The two women turned and met my eyes. I slammed the door and stumbled backward. The stainlit hall spun. Taylor! Taylor! I lurched toward the opposite bedroom door, forced myself to open it, screaming my brother's name. Taylor! Behind this door lay the barren floors and cobweb corners of present day halfway house. But in the center of the room, my presence seemed to trigger a grim, invisible display. A spray of blood jetted up one wall, like an invisible victim was being slaughtered. The red stain faded almost as soon as it splattered. Over and over and over. I collapsed by the steps. I tried to shout for my brother again, but only a scream of utter revulsion surfaced. Ah! I attempted to stand and descend the stairs but I carelessly trusted my left hand to the rotting banister. Multiple spindles snapped like trees in a hurricane. I toppled into the parlor and landed hard on my side. Plumes of dust coiled over me on impact. My eyes watered. I crawled in blind desperation, yearning for a clean breath. Shattered kitchen tile soon stabbed at my palms. I wiped my eyes on my shirt sleeves and glanced up. A light beamed through the boarded-up back door and illuminated something by the dark cove of cellar stairs. Hooked on the banister to the lower level, rows of serrated teeth gleamed. Ah! Our mother had bought Taylor that shark tooth necklace on our trip to Myrtle Beach. He wore it religiously ever since she died. They're toying with you, I realized luring you down there. But I wasn't leaving. Not without Taylor. My arms ached. My head whirled with fear. I struggled to my feet. The kitchen swam, dreamlike, as I crossed it on rubbery legs. I took the shark-toothed talisman and carefully hooked it around my neck. I pulled our father's lighter from my pocket and flicked a flame that cast wavering light into a cool, concrete basement. The moldy stairs bowed under my weight, but they didn't break. At the bottom, my flame revealed rows of old cots. Here's where they slept, I realized. All the people that nobody cared about, that nobody came looking for. Darkness pressed around my circle of light. Cold breaths huffed through the shadows. A drumbeat of palpitations pressed against me. I had yet to see a soul but surely scores of them surrounded me. I found my brother huddled in the corner, shirtless, unshaven, reeking of sweat and trembling head to toe. Taylor's eyes were wide as traffic lights. His hands were raw with calluses and bruises splotched his torso. He rocked against the wall. Taylor. I reached down, took him by the shoulders, and wept. For a moment, my fear of the unknown melted in my overwhelming urge to hold him in my arms. And I did. His body trembled against mine. Taylor, it's okay. It's Kurt. I'm here. I pressed our foreheads together. Taylor, you have to come with me. We're going to leave this place. We're going home, okay? His jaw shook. His eyes zoomed in trance staring far beyond me into some eerie elsewhere. I took the Red Sox cap and secured it over his head. I unhooked the shark tooth necklace and slipped it around his neck. Then I held his hands and we cradled the fire of the lighter together. Taylor, I am so, so sorry. I... His eyes began to focus. One hand clasped the string of teeth. He took a long, shaky breath. Kurt? Yeah, it's me. Kurt, Kurt, I've seen things. I know. We need to get out. You don't understand. This place traps you. The things those women did, they did them because they believed those men deserved it. They told me I'm just as bad. Told me that. Don't listen to them. No, Kurt. No, no, no. no, Just, I think, I think, I think I trapped myself here. It's not them. It's me. I can't, I can't. You can. For God's sake, come on. I pulled Taylor to his feet. His legs bowed and quake, but I managed to hook his arm over my shoulder. As soon as we faced the dim shadow of the stairs, we saw them. Scores of eyes. Lost souls sitting up in bed. In every cot and the space behind them, human shapes the color of charcoal, with eyes white as stars, watched us. They said nothing, but I heard their thoughts echoing. He belongs with us. Taylor started to slip into a dead weight. You don't belong here, Taylor. We moved forward between the lost and forgotten shades. You never belonged in a place like this. Taylor cried as if every step were agony, as if nails were sinking into his feet. Nobody deserves this. Nobody. We closed in on the steps. Orange blades of sun beckoned us from the kitchen door. Nobody deserves this, but least of all, my brother. The stairs groaned under our combined weight, but the wood held. Steadily, step by step, we ascended. All the while, those haunting eyes, like midnight stars, gleamed envy and anger. Nobody will ever come for those people, I realized. Shame coursed through me because I almost hadn't come for Taylor. We reached the top. Taylor winced in fading afternoon light. I attempted to pry the planks off the boarded up back door, but they wouldn't budge. Kurt, they're coming. We have to go. We have to go now. I'm trying to. Move. Taylor shoved me onto the dusty kitchen floor. Air rushed between us. Crisp white notches hacked into the wood. Red cat-scratch lines carved Taylor's chest. Run! I grabbed Taylor's wrist. Something pressed against me, forced me against the kitchen counter, and pried my spine backwards. I struggled under tremendous weight. My muscles cramped up. Taylor wrapped his arms around my legs. He tugged, grunted, and cursed. At last, he finally managed to wrench me free from the counter. More invisible hacks split the cabinets. Dust sailed behind the sweep of a hidden specter's gown. Taylor steered me into the parlor. An invisible blade whooshed. The piano leg crunched in half, and the entire instrument crashed against ancient floorboards in an avalanche of sour notes. Taylor stumbled forward as red slashes tallied his backside. The remains of the banister cracked to the whooshes of the invisible axe. The door wavered open. It tugged back and forth as if something, someone other than those women were prying it wide for us, struggling against the might of the house. The overgrown prairie of the front lawn seemed to scream for us. I dragged Taylor as he suffered more cuts and lashes. Every creak, groan, and cry of despair flourished around us as if the whole house had come alive with madness The floorboard snapped up and down, forming gnarled wooden teeth. I yanked Taylor over the threshold. Before I could free him, invisible hands tore away his shoddy sneakers. The entire house bellowed as I dragged him down the fractured brick walkway. The front door clamored, open and shut, open and shut. Every shutter clapped in fury. We had made it. We were free. Halfway House lamented the loss of my brother, while in the upstairs window, Isabella Castle and Lorraine Wing stood shoulder to shoulder and scowled.
1: In our final tale, we're reminded of the lengths kids will go to in order to impress their peers. In this tale, shared with us by author William Stewart, we meet the loudest, most aggressive kid in a group of friends. But that doesn't stop him from being the most popular. And sometimes when you're young and impressionable and hanging with a bad crowd, that can lead to tragedy. Performing this tale, are Peter Lewis, Atticus Jackson and Jesse Cornett. So don't give in to peer pressure. Remember, it's okay not to fit in. And whatever you do, don't head under the troll bridge. Every town has
0: the place, an abandoned building, an alleyway, a wooded area where the bad kids hang out. You know the ones I mean, the long hairs, metalheads, the druggies. It's where these outsiders go to smoke cigarettes and listen to music. For us, it was the bridge over Boot Creek, the little stream that snaked through town. Boot Creek itself was rarely any more than a muddy ditch, but at the top of the bank there was an area where kids could hang out and make noise and ride their skateboards without the nosy gazes of adults. My friends and I took to calling it Troll Bridge on account of it was occupied almost all the time by Billy Logan and his crew of pothead screw-ups. Billy was three years older than us, but was only one grade ahead because he'd been held back twice. I was in the seventh grade, and here was this giant, nearly fifteen-year-old bully running around terrorizing everyone. I don't look so shocked. It was the eighties. Things were just like that. You know, it was a different world then. Anyway, Billy had grown this sort of scraggly goatee on his chin, and my friend Chad made the remark that all that hanging out under the bridge was turning him into a Billy Goat. My other friend Daniel pointed out that it had been the troll who lived under the bridge, not the goats. I agreed with Daniel that Billy was much more like the troll than the goat. And after that, it was Troll Bridge, not Boot Creek that we avoided as much as we could. Now, like I said, this was the 80s, and things were different back then. Westport is still a tiny town, but back then it wasn't much more than a few cross streets, some churches, the schools, and a few neighborhoods. It was the sort of town that it was really big news, like on the front page, that they were opening a new gas station on 5th Street. So, in the 80s, I lived in a town that was still very much like the idyllic American towns that they showed on TV shows from the 50s. The people were pretty religious and very patriotic. There were community events and boosters, and on 4th of July, everyone in town would drag a cooler to the beach to watch the fireworks display out over the bay. There were no kidnappers or drug cartels, no perverts or traffickers. There was nothing to be afraid of in Westport, except for maybe Satan. But you know how it was. Everyone was scared of the devil back then. So when it came to things for me to be afraid of, it was pretty much Satan and Billy Logan. And although we were all plenty scared of the devil, Billy Logan was someone we saw every day. The thing was, although he was a giant asshole and I was terrified of the guy, I... I stood in awe of Billy Logan. Here was a guy who did whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted. Billy dressed in nothing but ripped jeans, black heavy metal t-shirts, and combat boots. His hair was working on being long, with the back hanging somewhat longer than the front. You'd call it a mullet now, but back then it was just what metalhead kids did between figuring out they wanted long hair and actually having it. Occasionally I'd see him riding around town on his bike, a tweaked-out BMX with mix-and-match parts. He was always leaning back, riding without hands, smoking a cigarette. He was also always sure to use the other hand to give you the finger if he saw you looking. Now, I realize that bullies are created by being bullied and that the story of Billy Logan was probably a horribly tragic one, full of neglectful parents and cries for help. I I know this. Part of me knew it then, too. You had to know that this sort of thing was not normal, that kids just didn't go around failing grades and being assholes because they were just naturally that cool. Now I realized that he probably had a terrible home life and was just acting out. And teachers? If I had to bet what the teachers were all talking about, most of all, in that tiny, smoke-filled teacher's lounge, it was Billy Logan. He had already been held back twice. There was no way this kid was going to college. Any decent grade he made was, in all likelihood, a sympathy mark, if he even bothered to show up for the class. So the teachers more or less left him alone. And for what it's worth, he obviously didn't have parents breathing down his neck all the time. Like some throwback version of Tyler Durden. He was free in all of the ways that I was not, and I craved that freedom. Another reason I took a shine to Billy Logan was because of the way Amy Martin looked at him the day he rode his skateboard through the cafeteria at lunchtime. I'd had a crush on Amy since the fifth grade, and had nearly gotten up the nerve to ask her to the dance before hearing through the grapevine that she'd already been asked. Amy had an older brother that kept her informed of what was cool. She knew about music and books that we'd never heard of before. She had this sort of maturity, this sophistication that set her apart from the other girls in class. She was also really, really pretty, so, brave or not, I knew that chances were slim that I'd ever have a shot at a date with her. I was standing in the line with Chad and Daniel when the door to the cafeteria slammed open with a loud bang. Startled, everyone turned to see what had happened. There was Billy, riding his board, hands raised in the heavy metal devil horns salute. He coasted to the center of the room and did a 360-degree spin before stopping and kicking the board into his hand. He looked around dramatically and put on his best Jeff Spicoli voice. Hey, there's no birthday party for me here! Everybody laughed and watched as Billy began to make his way to the exit, being flanked on both sides by angry lunchroom monitors. He faked left and then bolted right, slipping just under Coach Holden's reaching fingers, and then kicked open the door to the courtyard. When he realized he was free, he stuck a middle finger in the air before hitting the final door that opened to the parking lot. As the door swung shut, we could hear him cackling as he ran away. The cafeteria was abuzz with excitement. Billy had been bad before, but nobody had ever done something so outright crazy. Some people were just shaking their heads in exasperation. Others were discussing just how the school might go about punishing him when he came back on Monday. One thing's for certain the only thing anyone was talking about was Billy Logan and the stunt he'd just pulled. Chad and Daniel guessed that he'd probably, finally, be expelled and we would be over the terror of Westport Junior High. I wasn't really listening to any of it. You see, I'd only been watching Billy out of the corner of my eye. When he'd entered the room, I'd been sneaking glances at Amy Martin. I'd seen her reaction to his antics, and her reaction was anything but exasperation, anger, or pity. No, hers was a serious interest. I realized that she was watching him like I was watching her. Amy liked Billy Logan. She must have felt me watching because she turned to look at me. I turned away for a second and looked back. Amy was watching Billy again. I decided then and there that I needed to be friends with Billy Logan. Somehow, I thought he could show me how to be cool and whimsical and free like he was. Girls like bad boys? Fine, I was going to learn from the baddest of them all. The following Friday, when Chad invited me and Daniel over to his house after school, I declined, saying that my dad was making me do a bunch of chores. What I really had planned was to head down to Troll Bridge and see if I couldn't borrow a cigarette from Billy. Now, I want you to realize that I wasn't lonely or or weird or nerdy or any of those things, although I probably was all of those things without being aware of it. Most of my class had been together since kindergarten and everyone's parents knew each other. There weren't any real out-groups at our little school. There simply weren't enough students for that. But that was the thing. Everyone was so boringly normal that any deviation was just so incredibly interesting. I wonder sometimes if Billy's antics would have been received in the same way at a larger school in a city somewhere. Our school, it seemed, was just unable to deal with a delinquent like him. And whether it was good or bad, he got everybody's attention. Me, if I tried to pull anything even sort of silly, my folks would have my ass. My dad was former military and super strict. He had traveled the world and knew more than all the pansies out there. There was one correct way to do everything, and anything other than that way was not only wrong but almost personally insulting to him somehow. He was a man of very few words who always had his nose in a book, and most of the time that book was the bible. My mother was also quite strict and spartan, if not just a little gentler than my dad. And hell, I'm probably not even being fair. Mom used to tell me that Dad had a hard time during the war, that he'd seen horrible things that he couldn't even talk about, so I guess they were doing the best they could with what they had. They were still strict as hell, though. Even in our tiny town, where nothing ever happened and nothing ever went wrong, I had a seven o'clock curfew, eight on weekends. I had to call and check in all the time, and when friends were getting together for sleepovers or campouts, I was almost never allowed to go. Even when I was allowed, Mom would have to call and check and double-check with everybody's parents before I got permission. As elementary school gave way to junior high, I had expected the shackles to be loosened a bit, but so far, no such luck. I was wrapped just as tightly in parental supervision as I'd ever been, and every day my resentment was growing. As I watched Billy burst out those doors with his middle finger in the air, as I watched a kid flaunt complete and total disregard for authority and rules and parents and pretty much everything else and just walk away scot-free i knew i had to be a part of this i had to find out how he did it i needed to know how not to give a shit not in the way that everyone else did i needed to be billy logan's friend i i needed to be a badass who didn't give a fuck what people thought i needed to find out what went on under that goddamn bridge The following Friday, I said goodbye to my friends with as much false sincerity as I could muster. Yes, it sucked so much. It was going to be hot and stupid, but that was Dad and his arbitrary chore assignment. Yeah, I'd see everyone on Monday. Well, unless I saw them at church. But yeah, see you Monday. And so I hitched my backpack up and I headed across the football field and through the alley behind the grocery store. I stopped there to grab a soft drink for the bridge, then decided to grab a second just in case Billy wanted one. It was a strange walk out to Boot Creek Bridge. I no longer wanted to think of it as Troll Bridge now that I was going to be one of its occupants. We we weren't bad people, we were just misunderstood. We liked music and skateboards. There wasn't anything wrong with that. Did we like beer and cigarettes? Well, admittedly, I'd had neither, but hell yeah, we smoked and drank. It was just what we did, and if you didn't like it, you could just go on home. I imagined myself... Dressed in ripped jeans and black t-shirt, playing guitar in a band while Billy screamed to the world that heavy metal had landed in Westport and everyone who didn't like it could fuck off. Yeah, (laughs) I actually played air guitar as I walked across the video store parking lot. This was real. This was going to happen. I'd just need to get and learn to play a guitar and we'd be on MTV by this time next year. I crossed over 7th and made my way onto County Road 9 and made sure to stay far to the side to keep from getting hit by the crazies who treated 9 as their own private racetrack. It wasn't far, only a couple hundred yards to the bridge. i had crossed it hundreds of times on my way to and from school. There was nothing special or interesting or scary about the bridge itself. Except this was Troll Bridge. Billy Gruff Troll Logan was under there, and I had come to meet him. I had come to face the monster. And not only that, I was going to try to tame him enough to make friends with me, to, to play heavy metal, a subject I knew the square root of fuck all about. Under there was a, a kid who shined off teachers and parents alike. Grown-ups had nothing on him. All of their power and strength and authority meant nothing. The monster under the bridge was beyond the control of any adult, and adults were the place where kids like me put all of their hope and trust to keep things safe and normal. Billy Logan spit on all that and laughed at everyone's attempts to even try. And here I was with an extra can of Dr. Pepper, thinking I'd be able to tame the beast. I hesitated at the place where the asphalt met the dirt and clustered sticker burrs swayed in the southeast Texas breeze. What the hell was I thinking? I leaned on the guardrail and thought back over my plan. I would uh, go down there, act like life had just been too much to bear and pretend like I was just t- supposed to be there. If there was any conversation, I would just shake my head and pretend like my problems were oh, just too much to talk about. I would ask for a cigarette and then I would lean against the wall and talk to Billy Logan man to man. Once we got to talking, I'd go for the gold. Rambo was the biggest movie at the time, and it just so happened that my uncle had taken my cousin Thomas and me to see it. Afterward, on the way through the mall to his car, we stopped in the knife store, and he bought us both official Rambo survival knives. I remember being so excited on the drive home, Thomas and I sitting in the back seat comparing our identical blades... It was nearly a foot long with a sharp blade on one side and a saw or something on the other. The handle had a compass on the end and you could unscrew it to get all the cool stuff hidden inside. There were fish hooks and sewing needles, a handful of matches and a strike strip, some fishing line and thread for the needle. The sheath even had a compartment in front for a little blue sharpening stone. When I had this knife I felt prepared for anything. Well, anything except for my father. When we got home that day, I left my new knife on the back seat of my uncle's car. Thomas and I ran to the backyard while my uncle talked to my dad. A little while after they left, dad came into my room holding my survival knife and said we needed to talk. Son,
3: your uncle Darren told me he brought you and Thomas present.
0: I just looked at him before shrugging.
3: He looked uncomfortable. It's just that...
0: (sighs) He paused and looked around anywhere but at me.
3: It's that I think a boy needs a good knife. I'd been meaning to get you one myself. So it's all right?
0: His normally serious gaze turned to a smile.
3: Of course it is. I just want to make sure you know how to use it. A knife, any knife, but especially one as big as this one. It needs to be treated with respect. Can I trust you to keep it clean and sharp and put away when it's not in use?
0: Yes, sir. I hopped off the bed and gave him a hug, and to my surprise, he hugged me back.
3: I'm serious, son. The fastest way you'll get into trouble is to go around doing stupid things with stupid people. I want that knife either on your belt or on the top shelf of your closet. Do not take it anywhere you could get in trouble for it. No school, no church... No, nothing. But you can use it here in the backyard, and that's about it. Okay? And we'll go camping soon, and you can do what you like. But until then, please keep it put away. Okay? I had
0: been shocked but also just so damn happy, it had been the first time I could think of that my old man spoke to me like I was a man and not some little kid. I kept my word, too, I kept it on the shelf when I wasn't camping. It was the least I could do to keep my prize. Today, however, I I had gone the other way. Today that knife was stuffed between the soda cans in the front pocket of my backpack. Today, if soft drinks and small talk didn't work, I would prove to Billy that I could be cool. After all, only cool people would have a knife like mine, right? Or rather, only cool people would have the nerve to carry it around in their backpack at school. I would show him the knife, and he would think I was cool, and I'd be allowed into the gang, and and that would be that. I couldn't fail. I hesitated a moment longer before hitching up my pack and walking down the sandy embankment on the side of the bridge. Just a few feet off the road in a spot that was not visible from up there were many layers of spray paint in different colors. I couldn't make out what most of it said as it was painted over itself and nearly impossible to read. There were the names of bands, such as Slayer and Iron Maiden, among others. Most of these I failed to recognize. Further down, the graffiti got heavier, and I could make out swastikas and little phrases that I imagined were song lyrics. Among these phrases, more prominent than the others, were the phrases, Hail Satan and God is Dead. For whatever reason, the Hail Satan message didn't bother me, but but God is Dead gave me pause. Not for the first time, I thought I was making a mistake and should just turn and go home. But then a voice called from under the bridge. Who the hell are you? I took a few more steps and then followed the voice. Billy Logan was sitting against the concrete embankment smoking a cigarette and reading a magazine to say he looked surprised to see me was an understatement he regarded me carefully who's with you what do you want no nobody's with me i, I came by myself it's it's just been one of those days huh teachers all on my ass i, I needed to come and think Billy just watched me as I walked around, considering the graffiti. He set his magazine down and leaned forward, his arms hugging his knees, then stood up slowly. I didn't know what to make of him moving like that. He seemed like a cat ready to pounce. I had expected him to say something, but he didn't. This wasn't going well. I gestured to his cigarette. Mind if I get one of those? He exhaled a giant plume of smoke through his nose before reaching into his shirt pocket and tossing me a stick. Of course, it fell short and I had to walk over to pick it up. I looked at it for a second and then put it between my lips. I then patted my pockets as if looking for a lighter we both knew I didn't have. Uh, got a light? (sighs) Rolling his eyes, he produced a zippo and tossed it as well, but I caught it this time. I flipped the top and struck it. Puffing on my first ever cigarette, getting it lit before closing the lid and tossing the lighter back to him. I took a mouthful of smoke and blew it into the air. I looked at the cigarette and back to Billy.
1: Hmm.
0: Camel, I haven't had one of these before. It's good. Billy narrowed his eyes and moved away from me. He knew I was full of shit, knew that I didn't smoke. He knew that I didn't belong here. The only thing he wasn't sure of yet was why. Why was I here? What did I want? He walked over and stood over a rusted oil drum, the kind you see in movies being used as a fireplace by homeless people. He kicked it a couple of times. He still stared at me and said nothing. His silence was suddenly terrifying i started to say something thought better of it then remembered the cigarette in my hand and brought it up for another puff
5: it's not how you do it dweeb. you pull it into your mouth then you inhale it like this
0: he took a drag inhaled and then let it out in a slow exhale
5: What's a kid your age doing smoking, anyway? What are you,
0: twelve? Uh, thirteen, actually. I I mean, almost. In a few weeks, I'll be thirteen. The cigarette burned between my fingers and I tried again, following Billy's instructions. My biggest fear was that I would start coughing. I didn't. What happened was that I was immediately dizzy. I felt nauseated, something was wrong. I looked up at Billy through teary eyes and he laughed. (laughs) Jesus kid, you're
5: pretty fucking stupid.
0: The nausea soon passed but was replaced by a keening headache. I had no idea why, my only guess was that I had somehow smoked the cigarette incorrectly, too fast or too much at once. Either way, I was pretty miserable now. That feeling made worse by the laughing bully I'd come down here to impress. I tossed the cigarette away and turned to leave. This whole thing had been a mistake. People like this, places like this, they were all out of my league. Girls like Amy Martin were just as unattainable. I I would just have to accept that. I took a few steps back toward the road when something crashed into me from behind. My knees buckled and I went down on my stomach, my face on the concrete.
5: Where are you going, kiddo?
0: <laughs> Billy laughed as he pulled my right arm up behind me, pinned it against my backpack. The pain was so sudden and so immense that I barely had time to register what had happened. Billy was dragging me to my feet by very nearly ripping my arm out of its socket. I staggered up and then forward, my arm being used to steer my body. He walked me to the oil drum and then stopped.
5: You owe me a cigarette, asshole. I think there's one in there. Go get it. And with that,
0: he shoved my head into the drum. He... Pushed and pulled until I was inverted in the can. My arm now pinned between my backpack and my steel prison. He then lifted my legs. And gravity pulled me to the bottom of the can where my head and left arm splashed into a nasty slush of rancid water and wet cigarette butts. The odor of this and whatever else was in that liquid immediately made me throw up, and now I was covered in that too. I used my left arm to try to push myself out, but it was no use. I I was stuck fast, and even if I wasn't, I wasn't able to do a one-handed inverted push-up, even when I wasn't covered in vomit and shit water. It was completely dark. Whichever way I was situated in the barrel, there was no light. I couldn't move. And as my body settled, either through relaxing muscles or gravity pulling me, I felt myself getting stuck even tighter than before. I kicked my legs, frantically hoping to throw the can off balance so maybe I could crawl out. No such luck. Then Billy must have kicked the can because I was assailed with a tremendous noise that rattled my teeth. He kicked it a few more times, and each time was just as bad as the first. Then everything went quiet quiet was the worst part. The quiet was where I could begin to think about what had happened to me, and all at once the walls of my prison began to close in. Everything that had been black in the darkness went a sudden and stark white. I was going to die. I knew, now, nobody knew where i was i was stuck in this barrel my arm losing feeling billy could just leave me here and there was forever and always nothing i could do about it my body slid another half inch into the barrel and my neck turned at an odd painful angle this was it my stupid stupid self I tried one more time, kicking, pushing, screaming. Every ounce of energy pushed as hard as I possibly could against a captor that could not yield. Breathing was becoming difficult with the way my body pressed on my neck. I tried again to shift a little, just to help myself breathe, but it was no use. I couldn't move. Then something happened. I wiggled the fingers on my pinned right hand, and when I did, something in my backpack shifted. I had an idea. If I could somehow shift the contents of my bag, it might make enough room for me to slip out of the barrel. I didn't have time to think about it, it was my only hope. I began to probe the pack with the limited range of motion I had. There, right next to my thumb, was a zipper. I worked my fingers until I moved the zipper enough to make a hole and then I pulled the compartment open. One of the soda cans fell out and landed with a splash next to my head. Using my hand to push on the inside of the compartment, I exhaled and pushed and the second can fell out as well. I then gripped the handle of my knife and pulled it free of the bag. When I relaxed, I slid further into the can. My right arm came free, and I was able to throw the barrel off balance and knock it over. I scrambled out of the barrel onto the sandy concrete under the Boot Creek Bridge. I gasped for air and then choked. Giant, hacking, choking coughs followed as I rolled over and coughed up a cigarette butt. I then threw up again, although this time there was nothing left but bile. I sat there for a moment, on my knees trying to focus, trying to see, trying to make sense of anything at all. My ears were still ringing from when the barrel had been kicked. My eyes, nose, and mouth were full of vomit and shit water. I glanced up to see the shape of Billy Logan approaching me. He appeared to be smiling and had a hand out. I needed to run, to escape, to get away. He had done this to me. He hadn't meant for me to escape. He was going to put me back there, back in the barrel. I scrambled backwards as he came toward me. I looked to my left and then to my right, and I noticed I was still holding the knife. I quickly popped the snap and pulled it from its sheath. I then held it in both hands and lunged at Billy Logan and sunk its blade, all the ten inches of stainless china, into his belly. Billy's eyes went wide as I stabbed him. He screamed and staggered backward, taking the knife with him as the blade slipped from my hands. He tried to pull it from his stomach, but the inverted saw teeth on the backside of the blade held it in. A blackish-red stain appeared on his Iron Maiden t-shirt, and he fell to his knees. He tried to speak, but all that came out was a blubbering, nonsensical slur and a pained hiss. He then toppled over and rolled down the embankment into the littered ditch that was Boot Creek. He landed on his back, the handle of the knife now laying flat against his stomach. I thought for a second of all the damage that thing must have done as it got knocked side to side and up and down as he tumbled. He kicked a time or two, weakly in the wet scrabble of trash at the bottom of the ditch, then went still. What had I done? Oh my god, what had just happened? Adrenaline and panic rose almost as badly as it had been in the bottom of the barrel. Bile arose in my throat, and I threw up for the third time that afternoon. What now? Should I call the police? Should I just run away? I should get help. I should get help. That's what I should do. But what? What help? I was no doctor, but I imagined a ten-inch blade making random cuts inside the body cavity of a person. There was no help for Billy Logan. The the kid was dead. If not now, then definitely by the time I could find someone and bring them back. I I should just run. I'd go out to the train yards and hop on, the first one going anywhere. I I would just live as a man on the run. Telling stories to younger men about the dangers of bridges and trolls. I shook off the thought.
5: What are you, 12?
0: Billy's voice in my head. I I was just 12, and I just stabbed a guy to death. What kind of prison do they send a 12-year-old murderer to? certainly not Juvie, the place they send shoplifters and vandals. No, my prison, the one for murderers, was, had to be much worse. It was full of kids just like Billy Logan. Except, no, no, Logan might have been a dick, but he was no killer. So it was full of kids that were even meaner than Billy Logan. I shuddered. I could not go to prison. Not for this. This… it was an accident. It was self-defense. This was retaliation. Anyone could see my clothes and know that he had it coming. I, I was a good kid with good grades. My father was a, a decorated war veteran. Billy Logan was a piece of shit criminal who once tried to set the school on fire. If anything, I had done everyone a favor. I looked back at the now still body with a giant knife poking out of it and I knew that I was kidding myself. All the judge would have to ask is why I had that knife on me and why I had chosen to go under the bridge in the first place. Billy Logan had terrorized me in some way and I had gone down there seeking revenge. He had fought me but in the end the one with the huge knife used it to murder this harmless prankster. The gavel would come down and I would be escorted out in chains to spend the rest of my life among dangerous and violent criminals. No, I had to cover this up. I had to conceal it. I I had to get rid of the body. Thunder peeled off in the distance to herald a coming storm. I stared at the body for a long time, daring myself to move. I knew that when I did begin to move, whatever I did and whatever the results were, they were permanent. I was dealing with forever here, and as the storm got closer, I knew my time was running out. How was I going to get rid of him? I looked around for an answer, and then I found it. The barrel. I I would shove him in closed the top somehow, and when Boot Creek came up with the runoff from the storm, Billy, Barrel and all would be washed out into the bay, flushed away, gone, gone, gone. I could think of no other solution, so I got to work. I took off my backpack and stashed it high on the bank, then rolled the barrel down into the ditch, The echoing noise it made as it bounced off the concrete was deafening, and I was sure that someone was going to hear and investigate. I couldn't worry about that. I ran down and pulled the knife from Billy's belly. The saw teeth held chunks of flesh and gore that I would have to scrub to get off, but for now I just needed to hide the knife as well. Then, if anyone came along, I could say I found him like this, and I was trying to get him out of rather than into the barrel. I rolled the open end to his head and then lifted his head and shoulders into the can. He was heavier than I thought he would be, and I wasn't sure if I was strong enough to get the job done. I was also creeped out by his half-lidded eyes. I half expected him to jump up and grab me like the killer in a monster movie. I hoped he would, even, but I knew that he wouldn't. He was dead, and I had to get him into this barrel. I worked the barrel from side to side and inched the body into it little by little. Once I got a little past his hips, his head hit the bottom of the can and I couldn't get the rest of him in. I sat there for a second, thinking. When I'd been upside down in the barrel, my neck had turned, and when it did, my body shifted and more of me had fallen in. I needed to use gravity to help. I went to the open end of the barrel and tried lifting it up, but it was too heavy. I then bent Billy's knees and tried to shove them in. One of them caught on the side of the can and made it easier for me to get a grip. I held onto the side of that barrel and pushed with all my strength. Harder and harder than I'd ever tried to do anything before. And little by little, the barrel righted itself. The body of Billy Logan slipped further inside. Once I was done folding the other leg and pushing the corpse in, the barrel was only about three quarters full. I thought about how to close the top. The rain was closer now. I could smell it in the air along with the sludge and cigarettes from the barrel. The creek was flowing a bit more than it had been as well. I needed to hurry. How would I close this thing? There was no lid. Then I saw one of the Dr. Pepper cans that had fallen from my backpack. It had fallen out and rolled down here with us, and the top had been crushed somehow in all the confusion. I had a flash of inspiration and cast about looking for as big a rock as I could find. I found what I needed and set to work collapsing the top of the barrel on two sides. I then hammered the sides in, basically sealing the top by crushing it in on him. If I was lucky, the barrel would float away, maybe as far as the bay, and by the time they found the body there would be nothing to connect me to it in any way. As the rain began to fall around Boot Creek Bridge, I left the barrel, and the worst mistake I'd ever made behind. I collected my backpack and my knife. I wondered about the spots of blood that glistened here and there on the concrete, but as the water began to flow down the sides of the culvert, I was comfortable that it would wash away, and even if it didn't, It would blend with the swastikas and other graffiti down there. God is dead, indeed. I walked home in the rain, very slowly. I needed the water to wash me clean. I stopped behind the car wash and rinsed the blood and chunks off the knife. I would take a toothbrush to it later, but this would do for now. I cried as I worked. For the first time since Billy had attacked me, I'd been able to actually think about what had happened. A series of full-bodied shutters shook me, and I cried from my core. I cried for myself and what was going to happen when they found me. I imagined the looks on my parents' faces, my grandparents'. I cried for my teachers and my friends and everyone I'd let down by trying this stupid stunt. Strangely enough, though, I didn't cry for Billy Logan. I could still feel the wet, nasty cigarette butt lodged in my throat. No, although I cried for many, many things on that walk home, Billy Logan got none of my tears. When I got home, Dad was still at work and Mom's car was gone, meaning she was out running errands, and that meant I had time. I was completely drenched and fully exhausted, and the entire contents of my backpack were thoroughly soaked. I took out the knife and shoved it into my pants before dropping the bag in the laundry room and going to my room. I set the knife in its spot on my closet shelf and peeled my clothes off running to dump them into the washing machine. I then got into the shower and scrubbed my entire body over and over again with the hottest water I could stand. When I was done, I brushed my teeth longer and harder than I ever had before or since, and then I started over again. In the days that came, every phrase that anyone uttered scared me. I assumed that at any second someone would call my name and there would be a cop waiting to take me in. I was a murderer, after all. In English class, we'd been studying Poe's story, The Tell-Tale Heart.
1: (laughs) Of course we were.
0: I sat quietly as that heart beat in that crawlspace, and that killer gave himself up to the cops. I felt like I was being tested, like they knew it was me and they were giving me a chance to give myself up. I started to wonder if cops got bigger paychecks if the criminals confessed, because then they didn't have to pay the lawyers as much. Well, I was going to make them work for it. I wasn't going to say a word until I had no other choice. Even if they put me in chains and took me away, I'd never tell anyone what I'd done. I tried to convince myself that it had all just been some horrible dream anyway, and that Billy Logan would come bursting through that door any minute now, middle fingers blazing. I knew he wouldn't, of course, but I hoped... It was a full five days before anyone reported Billy missing. Apparently, his attendance at home had been just as sporadic as at school, and nobody even realized he was gone for almost a week. When the first missing person sign showed up on the bulletin board in the cafeteria, I just about fainted. People talked, of course. There were rumors. I listened to whoever was talking about what they'd heard. Billy had run away. Billy had a drug problem and owed a dealer. He moved to California to start a band. He got kidnapped by Satanists. He'd moved to California with a bunch of Satanists to start a band, etc., etc. I relaxed a little as each one of these stories came out. At least none of them claimed to have seen Billy getting his guts pulverized by some 12-year-old dork under the Boot Creek Bridge. Days turned into weeks and weeks to months. The local police had never liked that kid and were probably just happy that he moved on. Everyone pretty much agreed that he had just run away from home. His mom showed up at city council meetings and swore that if he'd just run away he would have at least called her by now. But she was a mean drunk who had punched a cop in front of the Dixie Mart on Christmas Eve, so they didn't like her, either. The missing persons signs faded, and with them the memory of Billy Logan. I turned 13, without having been caught, then 14. My folks moved from Westport to Dallas, then from Dallas to Tallahassee. I graduated high school and then college and went on to have a family and a career in a city and state I'd rather not mention. In the end, nobody put much effort into finding Billy Logan. Not much effort at all. I suppose when all was said and done, he wasn't someone I needed to be friends with. After all...
1: As the lights come back on, our stories come to an end. Please remember to be kind and rewind. And visit the thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this production. And on their behalf, we thank you for being a supportive, sleepless member. This audio production is copyright 2019 by Creative Reason Media Inc.,